Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we'll hear from Dr. Duncan Simons, who currently teaches at the Melbourne Graduate School for Education at the University of Melbourne. Duncan does research in primary mathematics education, higher education, and teaching methods. Duncan's passionate about inquiry, and we speak at length in this episode about practices around inquiry that can improve student learning. We also get into some discussion around rural education and how to improve students' perceptions of themselves as math and science learners. Although at the University of Melbourne now, Duncan started his career in the classroom. He understands the practical aspects of teaching and learning, and I really think this shows in our conversation. A word of warning. While we were interviewing Duncan, I had a little bit of a cold, so sometimes you're going to hear some coughing and a bit of sniffling. I apologize in advance. Here's my conversation with Dr. Duncan Simons. Hi, Dr. Simons. How are you today? Really well. Thanks for inviting me on today, Corey. No problems. I'm very happy to talk to you and uh, thankful that you could be on. Um, Why don't we get into the crux of our conversation today? Because I am really interested in this foreign thing that you tell me you're really into uh, and that is Australian rules football. Uh, what, is, what exactly is Australian rules football? It's, that's a really good question. It's probably not something that's that easily uh, explained. But I guess uh, if you consider Australian rules football a, a combination of maybe rugby, soccer, um, possibly lacrosse, uh, there's there's a lot of physicality in Australian rules football. It's it's something that that is uniquely Australian, um, and it's something that I've as a, as a Melbourneian I've grown up with all of my life. It's something that's passed on through uh, through families through generations. Um, I grew up in a little suburb of Melbourne called Essendon, and Essendon has its own AFL football side. Um, called the their sort of nickname is the Bombers, um, and actually in terms of the AFL, they've they've been one of the more successful teams uh, in in the, in the league. They've won sixteen premierships, um, which is the equal uh, greatest number. Although unfortunately for the last sort of eighteen years or so, they have not been anywhere near as successful. So I, I think it, the, the last premiership they won was in two thousand. Um, so it's been a long sort of eighteen years. But in, I guess in terms of trying to describe the game, um, if you think about rugby, uh, but but there's no offside uh, or soccer, and there's no offside. So you can kick the ball or handball the ball forward as, as much as you like. Um, there are four goalposts at either end. And if you kick the ball through the middle two goalposts, you get six points. If you kick it on either side of those goalposts, so within the outermost goalposts, you get one point. Um, 
there's tackling, there's high marking of the ball. You can catch the ball, which we call a mark. Um, it's 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 a game that requires huge amounts of endurance. So uh, I think on average, an AFL player would run something like fourteen or fifteen kilometers per game. Um, yeah. So. I, is it, does that sort of briefly kind that, of that does I think for uh, for someone who is uh, like I said just trying to get a conception of this and so yeah kind of a cross between soccer and rugby and football and all that kind of stuff and then uh, I actually looked up some pictures of Australian <laughs> football and yeah, yeah. The, the the catching on top of another person was the thing that got me that, that yeah. dangerous. Yeah, to, well, in, colloquially, that's known as a specky, um, uh, like a spectacular mark. So, yeah, just jumping up on top of someone's shoulders and taking it above their heads um, is, is one of the more uh, amazing, I guess, aspects of, of the game. And certainly, I think for international, anyone that's in, interested from sort of an international perspective might be something that would draw you to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but definitely, if you ever come down our way, Corey, uh, I will take you to a game of AFL, um, and I, and I will uh, t- I will do my best to to convert you to to the Essendon Bombers. That uh, that sounds that's that sounds like a plan. I'm I'm in, uh, but we know, and I'm a big fan because I'm a, a big sports fan and player and all that kind of stuff. We know that um, that what you learn on the sports field doesn't just stay on the sports field. What do you think that you learned from Aussie Rules Football that you applied to your work as either an educator, teacher, or even as an educational researcher? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I did play AFL, uh, well, Aussie Rules Football throughout sort of my schooling and, and even beyond my schooling. Uh, and one of the big things, and it's probably common to, to you know various sports across the world, whether it be NFL, basketball, whatever you want to think about, is, is that sort of notion of, of, of mateship. Um, being teammates, uh, so so that's something for me, it, uh, particularly in terms of research. Collaboration is absolutely is hugely important. So, being able to create new networks, being able to to develop networks that exist here within the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, um, is is something that's fundamentally important to me as a researcher. Um, I think, you know, to this point, despite the fact that I've published, I'm, 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 you know, a relatively inexperienced, uh, academic, you know, I've probably published, you know, just over 10 publications or something like that. I, I'm still yet to publish a sole authored, uh, publication. And it's not something, it's not something that I actually, I have any problems with it. It's not something that I intend to change anytime soon, because for me, the process of, of researching um, should be this highly collaborative process where uh, where I'm working with other academics from not just the Melbourne Graduate School of Education but beyond you know local universities and international universities. Yeah, yeah, we see that. You see that in academics. We see that in teachers and schools. So that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to uh, <laughs> your original uh, kind of job. Um, Mm -hmm. at least in this profession, in the education profession. And a lot of people call teaching a calling. Um, Mm -hmm. How did, how did you become a teacher? What were some of the early experiences that you had that led you to becoming a teacher and choosing the role or the profession of teacher? Okay. So fresh out of school, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, And so I actually initially enrolled in a bachelor of arts uh, degree, um, which Perhaps uh, I was probably the stereotype of an art student. I had no idea what I wanted to do, so that's what I, I decided to do. So I, I got sort of partway through that, 
um, kind of specializing in sociology and, and those sorts of areas. And I kind of realized, yeah, this is okay, but I think I just need some time away from study um, just to see what, what else exists out there in the world. So from that point forward, I started doing work at, just as a, as a swimming teacher at a, a local swimming school. Uh, I also um, was able to go back to the school that I attended uh, and work as a, a, within after school care and look after the kids sort of in, in those sorts of locations. And as I sort of progressed with my swimming teaching, became really passionate about swimming teaching and seeing the progress that, student, that, 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 that the kids made. Um, I, I became really interested in, 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 in seeing that sort of progression that occurred. Uh, and I think that's the thing that then made me say, well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, so that at that point, I enrolled here again at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, although it was the Faculty of Education then, um, in a Bachelor of Education course. That is awesome because... Uh... I have a similar experience. I uh, I was unsure, and uh, it was teaching swimming and coaching swimming that ah. that made me think about and, and and choose education. So that's really great. That's ah. awesome. <laughs> now, um, I know that early in your career you taught in a rural and even a remote rural setting. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah. Um... So that was immediately post-graduation from my undergraduate degree. So I did the Bachelor of Education. Um, I probably should give you a bit, bit more of a story or a context for me. I, I attended from early learning center. So as a four-year-old through to year 12, so some 13, 14 years, all at the same fairly uh, privileged, I guess, uh, independent school here in in Melbourne. Now, is it co- uh, is it common to to go that long at the same school in Australia? Here, it seems like it's much more common to switch schools at least once, twice, maybe. It's not that common. Okay. Um, so, so, so I mean, so, so, so I should probably give you some more context as well and tell you that in Australia there is there's there's quite a distinction between, I guess, uh, the state education system and independent schools uh, that exist here. Um, I think in in many other countries around the world, state education is the predominant um, mode of school-based education. Here, there's a very, very large group of independent schools that exist to to sort of, I guess, supplement the the state education system. Um, So more commonly, you'll find sort of... uh, early learning center through to year 12 independent schools uh where in the state system more commonly you'll attend a local primary school uh and then you'll move to a separate secondary school um so yeah so it was so that so i mean you know there are plenty of examples of them around where this occurs however it's not the norm i would say um but anyway so i was i went through that that system um most of that period i was at an at at a all boys school uh believe it or not um strangely at the school that i attended in in year 11 and 12 which are the final years uh they 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 bring uh the boys and the girls from a separate campus together so you end up with this co-educational setup just for the final two years of your schooling um, just anyway. to throw off the hormones a little bit or something like yes. that. Hey? Yeah. Whoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly what the rationale is for it, but that's, that's the way it works. Um, but as I said, so, as, as, so finish year 12, spend a, spent a year or so sort of just working out what it was that I wanted to do, enrolled in my bachelor of education here at the university of Melbourne, spent four years, uh, here. 
I then decided, well, I, d- I don't want to necessarily put my hand up immediately to take a full-time class. I will do. I might do some what we call casual relief teaching, um, and I'm sure that you have similar sorts yeah, of yeah, right? teacher on yeah, call yeah. or substitute teaching. Yeah, yeah. So believe it or not, I ended up, and, and this actually has. This is also kind of where I guess my passion for teaching came from as well. Uh, my mother is actually a primary, well, has been a primary school teacher. So I I did some work at her school, and I was like, this is great, this is fun. But I still feel like I'm uh, living a fairly sheltered existence. I haven't really uh, lived or experienced anything other than this fairly uh, sheltered, uh, privileged sort of existence to this point. I need to go and find something else. I need to go and experience some other things. Now, before you uh, go on, was that was that your major minor? So did you specialize in primary education or, or were you more of a secondary person? What was your – do you do that in Australia? I imagine you do, but – so yeah, so so the degree was primarily focused in primary education. Right. Yeah. Okay. Although although yeah, although there were the particular version that I did of it did sort of push me towards the science and maths sort of area. Um but so yeah, at that point I I got online and I had a look at the Northern De- uh, Territory Department of Education website. Uh, I managed to find a, a phone number to call. Uh called up and said, hi, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering what the protest is, if I need to go, if, if, you know, I have a desire to potentially come up and do some teaching um, up, up in the Northern Territory. Uh, I guess for, for your listeners, um, if you're thinking about Australia, most of them would probably maybe know the general shape of Australia. Um, the Northern Territory is the northernmost s- central state in, or territory in Australia. Um yeah, I guess that vaguely kind of describes it. Um, so, so I gave them a call, uh, uh, and in and I wasn't anticipating. Uh, I was anticipating sort of a fairly lengthy process might ensue. Ensue, you know, that 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 applications would have to be sent through and this and that and whatever else. But uh, immediately, I was put through to a principal of a group school. So, um, so that so in the territory, uh, you have a principal that looks after a number of schools. Um, and then there are sort of, I guess, assistant principals that exist within the smaller schools. Um, and he said, "No worries, mate. Um, we can uh, we can hook you up with a job. Uh, when, when 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 can you get on the next flight? Basically, amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, so within kind of a week of of making that phone call, I was on a plane to Alice Springs, which is right in the very centre of Australia." I was then uh, I was then in a troop carrier, Land Cruiser troop carrier, um, driving approximately 850 k's north along the Stuart Highway, um, which is again down the very middle of Australia, so due north from Alice Springs down the, the middle of Australia. Um, we took a, a, a right turn at that point, and then we, another probably 350 or 400 kilometer, kilometers on dirt. And I arrived in in a in a very remote community uh, in Australia where there were approximately 300 people, uh, all of whom were Indigenous. Um, and yeah, and within sort of a couple of days, I was I was teaching uh, these these kids who predominantly um, didn't speak basically any English. Most of them come in, come into school, um, yeah, with only just a few words of English. Uh, sort of dealing with this 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 you know real. Uh, uh, I guess challenge, challenge, uh, challenging situation. 
Um, so, so yeah, at first it was, it was an incredible challenge, but over time getting to know the community, getting to know, uh, what they were interested in and what they were passionate about, it became a really worthwhile, uh, really rewarding sort of undertaking. And actually just bringing it back to our earlier discussion about football, one thing that you, you, you might, you probably don't know that might, might interest you is that, um, generally across Australia, indigenous communities are highly highly interested and passionate about australian rules football so so immediately that was something i was able to connect with uh in the community um and use as a real sort of as a way of 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 getting to know them and making them trust i guess me and, and and forming those really important relationships that sounds uh that sounds like you got what you were looking for i would say outside of privilege that's that's really amazing. No, we have a lot of similarities in Canada. There are uh, some northern communities that, that would do very similar things. You know, you call them up, you're in. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, question, uh, were you alone on the troop carrier or were there troops no. or were there like the whole <laughs> band of teachers coming up? Like, no, I, so as I mentioned, there, was, there, there were normally assistant principals that were located in within each of the, the community schools. So there was an assistant principal who came down to meet me in Alice Springs, who drove me up to, to uh, and yeah, so it was just the two of us. Okay. Um, but <laughs> because, because of uh, the remoteness of all of these schools and because of the terrain you have to sort of be able to deal with in order to be able to access these sorts of schools, um, we it, it's necessary to have like a pretty heavy duty four wheel drive. Right, so in, right. in this case, we're using Toyota Land Cruiser troop carriers. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, the only difference in Canada is you'd have probably been on a skidoo or something like that. <laughs> well, um, that sounds amazing. You talked about learning about uh, learning uh, to develop relationships and, and how to do that and using you know, your passions. Um, what are some of the other lessons that you learned out of working in that rural setting that you think informed your future teaching career? Yeah, so I think probably the the really big thing that I I took out of the experience was that uh, a a lot of education should come from the actual context in which you teach. Um, So as you can imagine, there weren't a lot of resources um, that 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 school had access to. So that meant that I had to, to quickly get to know my students, learn what they were passionate about, and use that as as the driving force behind a lot of the teaching that actually occurred there. So an example of that would be the fact that uh, in in indigenous communities, uh, traditionally uh, they 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 use bush tucker as a source of food. Um, and and again, I assume it's similar in Inuit communities, and that that is the term that are indigenous communities in Canada. Yeah. Um, uh, having spent some time in the community and got gotten to know my students uh, pretty well, uh, I realised that bush tucker was a really important cultural sort of phenomenon, I guess, that existed within the communities. And so I thought, that, let's actually take that and use that as a basis for some of the science learning that we sort of were going to go through. Uh, so we went out sort of... Uh, Looking for uh, bush tucker and 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 uh, searching for mini beasts within the community. So, so just um, before you go on, just so we have, because what exactly is a bush tucker? Is it a plant? Is it an animal? <laughs> uh, uh, just for those that, that I don't I don't actually know what this is. Okay, so bush tucker basically refers to 
any of the indigenous plants or animals that are used as a food source okay. uh, that exist around sort of communities, indigenous communities. Um, so, so we're not talking about McDonald's Big Macs or no, no, <laughs> no, no, or or a particular plant or a particular animal. It's anything that can be used for as a, as a food source. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. great. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So with that in mind, uh, we we went out and we we went searching for bush tucker, and we were able to look at the biology of things uh, like sugar bag. Um, and what sugar bag is, is it's, it's basically honey that's sourced from wild native bees in Australia. Um, one thing that you might not be aware of is that Australia actually has a profusion of wild native bees, all of which are stingless. Um, so it actually makes it quite easy to hunt for this, this sort of uh, particular product. And then we're able to look at things like the hexagonal patterns that exist within uh, the beehives. Um, another thing that we, we discovered as we were going through this sort of, uh, this, this hunt, I guess, um, is, is some local tarantulas, uh, that, that burrow down deep into, into, into the earth. Um, that, and, uh, and the locals all knew about them and, and up until, until we actually went through this process, I noticed that overnight there was this strange sort of whooping sound that you could hear um, as you were sort of going, sitting down to go to bed. The tarantulas, which are about sort of the size of my hand, um, were responsible for making this noise. So we were able to look at sort of the anatomy of these spiders. The kids were, at, I don't know how they did it, but they actually caught an example of it. We, we then sent it off to, a, to an arachnologist, um, a guy called Robert Raven, which is a kind of a, a suitable name, um, who, who was able to tell us that that up until that point it, it hadn't actually been identified scientifically. Um, so our class was actually able to sort of come up with a, a name for that particular tarantula. Amazing. What did, what did you guys yeah. name it? Do you remember? No, I don't. <laughs> um, this was so. This was this was in about two thousand and eight. So. Yeah, we did have communication back back and forth, but I cannot remember exactly what it was. That's what we amazing! It. I bet you the kids were over the top. They were uh, explorers they and and and, yeah, and yeah. real scientists. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was. I think I guess that sort of taught me how important sort of the inquiry process is. So thinking about sort of any uh, a, ch a challenge or a problem that we could investigate. Uh, coming up with a plan for how we could go about that investigation process, thinking about data that would would allow us to sort of uh, to 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 answer the questions that we'd initially come up with, how we would analyze that data, and then how we might communicate it. That that's uh, that is amazing. I I just uh, we don't have the out Australian outback here, but mm -hmm. uh, I think that that could be potentially the basis for. Uh, a study anywhere you are, whether you're in the city mm. or whether you're in a rural setting, uh, sounds sounds like the kids were really involved and it meant something to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How long did you stay at uh, at that remote so place? I, yeah, so I was there for about two years, um, and again, I don't know, I don't know a great deal about sort of the Canadian Indigenous <laughs> population, but. Um, as I said, this was a very small community that I was living in, and there were two sort of main families that, that lived within that community. Uh, towards the end of my time there, there was some, I guess, civil unrest, uh, for want of a better word, that, that, that had occurred there, uh, which kind of did mean that, that it, it became 
more difficult, I guess, to live in that environment. Um, and that was probably one of the reasons why I then, yeah. you know, decided to move back to, to Melbourne. Yeah. And then where did you where did you teach after that? So in Melbourne, yeah. uh, what kind of situation there? So very sort of standard. Uh, yeah. So from that point, I spent like a number of years just teaching in, in fairly standard suburban schools. Um, I spent yeah, most of my time at a school uh, that, that's sort of about 20 kilometers north of Melbourne um, with, you know, with fairly moderate sort of socioeconomic demographics, um, about as standard and about as average as you could get after having sort of gone through this fairly, uh, you know, amazing, I guess, experience beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. So how long was it that you were in teaching before you kind of thought about moving over towards the academic world? Um, so I probably taught without any kind of, uh, thoughts of academia for about eight years. Um, and then beyond that, I decided to study my master's degree here at, at the university of Melbourne through that period. I got to know an associate professor of mathematics education really well, a, a woman called Robin Pierce, um, uh, who, who writes some amazing research, research, particularly in the area of technology integration within mathematics. Um, and through that process, um, we, I think we, we got on really well with each other and she asked me if there was any chance that I might be able to do some sessional teaching for the, t for primary mathematics education here at the university. Um, and I said, oh, well, I'm not sure how my principal will feel about that, uh, in terms of, you know, <laughs> taking time off for those sorts of things. But anyway, I approached my principal, uh, and said, look, is there a chance that I can reduce my time fraction to sort of 0.8? Um, so, you know, basically releasing one day to be able to do this sort of sessional work. Uh, and, and they were really supportive, so uh, which I was incredibly thankful for, um, which then meant that, so for the next couple of years, I, I taught uh, here at the university in primary mathematics. So I, I, I had a few different subjects that I was I taught at that time. One was focused on sort of the pedagogy associated with number and algebra, one was on measurement and geometry, and one that I still actually coordinate now uh, is focused on statistics and probability. But but the pedagogy of inquiry-based investigative mathematics teaching is is the thing that really uh, I, we push hard and we develop really, uh, quite strongly, I guess, through that subject. Amazing. A lot of people, they, they don't see or, or they... I guess they project the stereotype of an academic is that they've forgotten all of the things that they learned as a teacher and that they're uh, working in isolation and, and they don't really understand the plight or the realities. What are some of the things that you remember or to keep yourself grounded um, that, that doesn't let you propagate that stereotype that lets you be the informed academic that understands yeah. practical, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, I think I've said that a few times now because I think like all of your questions are, I think, really quite pertinent. Um, one thing, well, what, what, I, what I do as much as I possibly can is I get into schools and I, and I coach and I teach and I model as much as I possibly can still. Um, so I've, I've been working and, and, I, and what I tend, try, try to do is try to, to, to do that sort of work within schools that are, that are very different um, in terms of the dem demographics. So uh, last year and, and actually moving into this year, I've spent um, many days working in probably, well, what's considered the lowest socioeconomic economic demographic school in the lowest region 
of the lowest socioeconomic demographic region of Melbourne. Um, and I have taught across from foundation to six in, in, in my capacity there as, and, and modeled and coached the teachers there. Um, and then I've also spent more recently time at a school, at, which is the absolute opposite end of the spectrum where uh, there's a lot of money flowing. It's, it's an independent school, as I sort of I, I spoke about that sort of um, dichotomy, I guess, earlier on. <laughs> Uh, where the students or their families are paying really large amounts of money to be able to attend that school. Uh, you can imagine the sorts of cars, et cetera, that are <laughs> driving. Um, but, but it's been, but, but what, what interests me in sort of seeing the dichotomy between these sorts of different schools is that actually, I think that there's more commonalities than there are differences. Um, and the fundamental, uh, nature of, of really good teaching remains the same and it doesn't really matter what the context is. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, if we're thinking about what I believe in terms of, you know, what really good quality mathematics teaching should be, um, and this might sort of skip ahead in terms of, uh, in terms of the interview, but, um, but certainly I think that it should be founded on really good, uh, guided, directed inquiry. Yeah. Absolutely, and and we'll get there. We'll 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 get to the inquiry. But I wanna I wanna back it up. You talked about some of the mentors that you had in in academia and, and some of the people that pushed you to the next step. But I was wondering, you know, now that you're there, <laughs> some of us like to look beyond the curtain, right? So uh, as teachers looking over to academia, what would you say? the biggest surprise was moving from the classroom over into a university setting where, where you were like, Oh, I, I didn't really expect that. Or, Oh, that's not like I thought it was at all. I mean, there's, there's the pragmatics and then there's the sort of the less practical sort of sides. Like the, the <laughs> it took me a while to, to, to come to terms with the fact that I could just leave to go to, 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 to the bathroom, as you would probably put it, yeah. uh, whenever I wanted. Um, you didn't uh, have to wait for the bell. What do you mean? No, <laughs> no, absolutely. So, so that was a pleasant surprise. But how did um, you know when to go, Duncan? <laughs> precisely. Um, but no. But I mean, seriously, in terms of things that I, I really had not anticipated, um, autonomy is probably one one really strong thing that 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 I really love about being in, in academia. If I have an, if I have a thought, if I have an idea, um, that I, that I'd like to research, I can do that. Um, yeah. no one can tell me what I need to, you know, the particular areas that I need to be researching or, um, or the particular things that I, I should be pursuing. Basically it's up to me to guide and to, um, navigate my own sort of, uh, research trajectory. Um, and and that's something I really really enjoy. Um, but then, in, I mean, in saying that, you you still get that level of autonomy uh, in teaching in terms of I would say something like constructing a lesson sequence. So basically, if if we just ensure that we we are developing a particular descriptor within the Australian curriculum, if we're thinking about our context, um, and as, as long as you are you are you're thinking carefully about how how to develop those ideas, the rest of how you go about about engineering that sort of learning sequence is really up to you. So I guess 
there is that that there is that I guess creative aspect to both, but yeah. certainly I think it's the autonomy that that I have um, that that is something that's that's incredibly refreshing. If if I'm thinking about sort of negative aspects, sure, um, let's go there. Why not? <laughs> um, then I would probably say it's there's you are. If, probably at times quite isolated um, in, in academia, um, w- or more so anyway than working at a school where, you know, in my experience of working in schools is that, you know, at every uh, morning tea time, at every lunchtime, we'd get together and we'd have really good conversations and, you know, we'd unpack what had happened in the previous lessons and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, Often, I mean, depending on the size of your faculty and stuff like that, uh, everyone is is incredibly busy, and 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 there isn't that sort of uh, the structure in place that necessarily leads to, um, to to everyone coming together as as regularly, I guess, as 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 the school environment. That that sounds uh, great. I think that sums up the positives and negatives. Now, this might actually build on on that answer, but um, at least in Canada, and I'm sure around the world the university of melbourne especially in education is is pretty highly regarded you you work there um i know you might be a bit biased but what do you <laughs> think some of the reasons are for this success and and for the reputation of your education your school of education at the university of melbourne um so this is probably this potentially might sound a little bit cliched but uh one of the our universities uh, catchphrases, I guess, is dream large. Um, and I really like that. And I feel like that, that from what I know, academics here really do embody that message. Um, certainly I, along with my colleagues, we don't just think in sort of a local context. Um, we, we're constantly thinking, okay, that, has relevance to what is happening here, but how is it generalizable? How is it, how is it something that could actually impact education worldwide? Um, so, you know, we do have, you know, some of the big names, like everyone in, in education is aware of people like John Hattie. Um, but, 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 but I think it's much more that, that it, independent academics within the graduate school of education do have this sort of global mindset they're not just interested in you know uh how you know the, the latest local uh curriculum iteration uh but they're interested in how we can you know impact education worldwide yeah the thing that i would add and that i appreciate again being on the other side of the world is is um the outreach and so things that they do to get ideas out um you know it seems like they're pretty forward thinking in terms of podcasts and and webcasts and free flow of information things like that so um I don't know. I don't know if you see that or if that's even a, a direction that you hear about. I don't know if that's encouraged, but yeah, we we see yeah. that over here in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that increasingly uh with, you know, the internet as it is today, we're always looking for opportunities to disseminate our research and to communicate uh with with different communities a- across the world. Okay, let's let's get into one of your passion projects. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the, the the areas that I know that is really dear to you, and and you t- you touched on it earlier, and that's inquiry. Tell me um, about I guess I guess you 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 kind of already outlined how you came about finding about inquiry or l- maybe learning firsthand the positives of inquiry, um, and. and 
perhaps just expand on that. Go ahead. Yeah. So I think my view is that inquiry processes in education are often not really well understood. Um, I feel like, like, I mean, if you look at something like Hattie's visible learning or, or, or various, uh, effect sizes associated with inquiry based approaches to education, often you'll see that there isn't this huge effect size, um, that, that maybe people would expect given that, that theoretically, you know, it is, it has been, uh, written about as being, you know, a progressive, uh, a, an effective approach to education. My view is that 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 there is this huge uh, expanse of different ways that people conceptualize inquiry-based learning, um, and I am certainly of the belief. I mean, co- coming, I guess, from a mathematics, science, STEM sort of background, that it should be uh, very much a guided, directed inquiry approach that we embrace when we're thinking about mathematics and we're thinking about science and we're thinking about integrated STEM. So that is, as I was mentioning before, um, initially the students are are taught to identify a a really good problem that can actually be researched. Um, They then think about the specific data that will allow them to answer that question. and that's not a that's not a trivial undertaking in and of itself. Um, often, often students will identify a, a question, and it'll be an interesting question, but it's not something that's going to be easily able to be researched. So, actually going through the explicit process of of discussing that and breaking down what are researchable questions that we can actually really look into, and what is the data that will really help us to answer that question, and then moving on from that, how do we go about the analysis process? Um, again, uh, that should be an explicit process after the analysis. What are the best ways of representing what, what it is that we've learned? You know, what are the particular graphical displays that we can, we can utilize that'll, that'll be able to communicate our message. And then finally, I guess, and that's the iterative cyclical nature of inquiry. What are the new questions that have emerged based on the inquiry that we've just sort of gone through? Um, and then at that point, you can sort of take it as far as you want to go because that, that cyclical nature means that you can move on and on and on and you can continue this process. Um, so so, so just so, so I can understand it, it sounds like what you're saying is that inquiry, just letting kids inquire and pose all these questions is not as effective or is perhaps ineffective as opposed to what you're saying is that there needs to be some of that surface or level learning that happens for them to then transfer that into this deep and the deep is the inquiry. So it's this transfer of a teacher actually talks about some of the yeah some of the structural or some of the 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 base type knowledge items and then you allow them to use inquiry as a way to play with them be creative with them and then explore yeah. does that sum it up i think that sums it up beautifully so i mean to to, to think about a, a, an explicit example um there, there comes a point in an inquiry process where students are going to have to think about how they're going to represent that data as i was saying yeah. um you know, they could be looking at line graphs. They could be looking at side-by-side compar- comparison gra- bar graphs. Um, there are a range of different graphical representations. Actually explicitly lo- looking at the different alternatives 
and and talking about the pros and cons of each of those different different graphical representations and what it is that they will allow you to communicate is stuff that I don't think happens enough as right. part of an inquiry cycle. Um, so recently, I was working with a school, and and I'm bring, again I'm bringing it back to I guess uh, the idea of Indigenous Australia, but we were looking at um, reconciliation data in Australia. So. The students had access to some data that was published by the Australian Bureau of uh, Statistics um, that, that that talked about Australian the general populace's perception of reconciliation in Australia. Mm-hmm. And then it talked about the perceptions of reconciliation specifically by Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Uh, and then what we had the kids do, we, we had them survey each other about their particular perceptions of reconciliation within that classroom. So this is a group of year six students, so approximately 12 to 13 years of age. Um, and so they, 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 we then asked them, what do you reckon is the best graphical representation for this data? Uh, and then eventually we were able to say, yes, side-by-side column graphs are going to be really useful for this because we're going to get really nice, clear comparisons between each of the the different representations of perceptions that exist around that concept Mm -hmm. of reconciliation within Australia. Um, The other thing I would say about about that investigation particularly um, is that it's so heavily focused within a legitimate context um, and, and, and that made it really meaningful. Um, sometimes, you know, for a long time we've talked about real world connections to mathematics and all of this kind of stuff, but I think it, it's, it's, it, they can often be trivial or kind of superficial connections that are made. There, there is an absolute, um, need if you are going to take an inquiry based approach to mathematics to firstly ensure that there is a context and secondly, to make sure that that context is, is fundamental to the to, to the investigation to the mathematics that's going to take place in that in that sequence it sounds like you're looking for almost a redefinition of inquiry it sounds like you're looking at almost to to rename a, a process which was uh, hijacked uh, the inquiry process was hijacked do you think that that is it sounds like it is, but do you think that that's the basis of maybe some some research, and and then that will bump up into whatever it is, Hattie's list or whatnot? But do we need to rev- <laughs> redefinition? We need to redefine what you're talking about, search that, and then and then get it out there so the teachers know yeah. how effective this is. So I know that you spoke to Ryan Dunn recently on on one of your podcasts. I did our first I- episode, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Ryan Dunn and I are actually part part of the work that we're doing in schools is around sort of uh, developing this approach to inquiry. So at the moment, we've got an ethics application in, and I don't know how much you know about the processes at, at universities and stuff like that. You but... betcha. It's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've got this ethics application in at the moment, and we're going to collect a whole range of data around, firstly, what the initial perceptions that teachers have around inquiry, and specifically about inquiry in mathematics uh, that the teachers held were, um, and then we're going to go through a series of these processes uh, and just see how their perceptions and their definitions and the way that they conceptualize the process of inquiry changes throughout that period. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely an area uh, of, of research interest to both uh, Ryan and myself, um, and it is something that we're going to be pursuing um, in, into the sort of medium to long term. Um, I would add to that that 
Uh, I also have, as I've sort of mentioned, a really great interest in integrated STEM-based approaches. And I, I feel like the general in, inquiry process, as I've sort of, uh, as I've outlined, can fit beautifully into an integrated STEM-based project process too. Um, you know, at its core, uh, all of these approaches to learning have really real, really authentic narratives that you're trying to understand, that you're trying to pull apart and to be, to be able to analyze. Um, and that works, as I said, for integrated STEM, it works for, for, for mathematics education as well. And I think it has the potential to, well, I mean, one of the claimed potentials that it has um, that, that people talk about in terms of STEM is that it should allow for greater levels of engagement. Um, yeah. Certainly in Australia, and I know internationally, uh, usually the research says that kids disengage from mathematics uh, in sort of late primary school, sort of year four, year five, uh, and then science sometime in early secondary school. So so part of, I guess, the work that I'm doing here and the work, the, the, the work in, in both inquiry mathematics and integrated STEM that I, that I really would like to, to leave, I guess, long term if I'm dreaming large, is, 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 is uh, sustained engagement within the STEM disciplines. Well, that leads perfectly into another question that I had, and that was... Uh, it seems as though, um, and I know here, and it sounds like what you're talking about uh, in Australia as well, is that students either see themselves as math science people or not. They yeah. see this as an extreme kind of position. It's either you're into that, or you're good at it, and it might be a fixed mindset, but there's obviously some sort of situation or experience that that has led them to think that. Yeah. Um, you talked about engagement. Uh would you say that that's perhaps one of the reasons that that they see themselves as this either good at math and science or not and and what might we do to to change that yeah that uh, another good question um so i've actually done some research in this sort of area in the last couple of years i published a paper that deals with identity uh within within sort of uh primary maths students um, and what, what I basically did was I looked at uh, some independent students that had been classified or streamed. Are you familiar with the term streaming? You bet. Yeah, we do. We talk about the same thing here. Streaming is in uh, a higher level or a lower level of yeah. um, academic uh, expectations inside of a class. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I did a study in, with a group of year five students where traditionally in their everyday classroom, they were streamed as either lower ability uh, at at level or, or higher ability sort of students, um, and in the in in the the investigation or in the research uh, that that we set up, uh, we had them engage in online collaborative mathematical problem solving, where they uh, where sort of fairly open ended uh, contextualized mathematical problems were posed to the students, and they were asked to collaboratively solve those problems online with each other so they would type to each other asynchronously so so not like in a chat room or something like that but more along the lines of a message board uh and they would then create artifacts to support their thinking so with things like excel documents word documents paint documents really basic stuff this was kind of just prior to the to the google uh suite of right. applications becoming sort of all all uh, prevailing but anyway um through this process uh we 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 looked at uh, a, a few kids from the sort of upper level and the lower level in particular and, and analyze the discourse that they were sort of involved with. 
uh, or that, that they were sharing. And we were able to identify that um, that certain students, depending on how they'd been streamed, you could really see that they, that they had this level of confidence uh, in their own opinion if they were sort of in this in, in the upper stream group or, or, or a lack thereof if they'd been streamed into the, to the lower achieving group. Um, the interesting thing was through analysis of, of the work that they were producing, uh, they there wasn't a great deal of difference in terms of their ability to engage in problem solving and reasoning. So where the students had been streamed in their in their everyday classroom situation, they were put into mixed ability groups in this online setting um, and asked to work in that way, which was really interesting. But but, but that got me thinking, and actually, in in the in the paper that I was sort of I'm talking about. Uh, it got me thinking about this idea that, that has been written about in the research around micro and macro identities. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is that over a period of time, um, students uh, undergo lots of different uh, micro experiences um, that can shape their, their greater macro identity as, as being either a maths person or not a maths person. And the same applies to science. So these sorts of micro identities can be developed through interactions with peers. So it could be as simple as a peer basically telling them that, they're, that, 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 that they have no idea, that they don't see what, you know, uh, give, basically giving them the impression that their, their ideas are worthless or, or those kinds of things. Or it could be, you know, a simple comment that a teacher makes um, that, that is, you know, not particularly positive or, or or that kind of thing. So, you know, over a period of time, as I said, lots of these micro events occurs, which goes to inform their macro identity. So what I guess I'm, I'm getting to is things like, like streaming uh, can result in a lot more of these negative micro events occurring, which shape their belief that they're not maths people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the... And, and, and conversely, if you're able to put them into mixed ability groups and they're all able to sort of uh, develop alongside each other and draw on each other's strengths and, weaks, strengths and weaknesses, we perhaps can move away from some of those negative sort of perceptions being developed. So in Alberta, we have uh, a program or, or not even a program. I would say it's um, a real big movement for what they call inclusion. And this is the idea of not streaming, not having different classrooms until a much later age. And so that would look like grade nine, year nine. So you're looking at 14-year-olds before um, we stream in, in significant numbers. It sounds like what you're talking about um, would would support that idea of inclusion of having these mixed ability groups for as long as possible, because yeah. it would actually influence their vision of themselves as learners. Yeah, I mean, I think all of the research that I've read around streaming says that it's uh, the only people that could that ever potentially get any benefit whatsoever are the very, very, very top. Uh, achievers and even the evidence for that is not is not really conclusive um, whereas it can have incredibly detrimental impacts to the lower achieving students in particular so if you look at I mean everyone's familiar with probably the work that Joe Bowler has done based on Carol Dweck's work on uh, growth and fixed mindsets um, which is I think probably where we're sort of skirting around here but actually prior to the work that she's done on that, she did a lot of work on setting or streaming or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, and she was able to articulate the fact that 
normally when these sorts of context situations are set up, what you end up with in that lowest achieving group is all of the kids that are already from minority backgrounds. So the kids that are usually from lower socioeconomic demographics um, will often be sort of newly arrived uh, migrants. Um, basically, the kids that have already uh, had a number of reasons for disadvantage. Um, and so we just sort of go on and we reinforce this cycle of disadvantage. Right. Um, so yeah, uh, my view, uh, and 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 it's and and it is a tricky. It's a tricky situation because clearly at times uh, developing a, 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 a system where you have this sort of streaming occurring means that um, practical practical implementation of differentiation is perhaps maybe easier for the teachers. Um, it's you know it's easier to set up. You don't you don't have this vast level of of difference that occurs within the different groups. Um, but but certainly my view is that if we can uh, if we can maintain mixed ability within our classrooms and we can cater and we can use things like open ended inquiry where there are these very clear multiple entry and exit points in terms of learning for mathematics then then that would that in my view that's a much pre- more preferable sort of uh, approach yeah but it sounds like you're not saying just throw everyone in, in the same class. It's saying equip teachers to be able to deal with meeting the needs of every student inside of the same class. And ultimately, if that's successful using these strategies, the end result will be higher. And I think that that's, yeah, yeah. that sounds like that sounds like a great, great initiative. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit uh, more generally about education. So what is one thing about education that you believe is true that most people would disagree with you about? Um, so I, I thought about this and I don't know whether this is something that everyone would disagree with. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts, but I don't think that everyone is a born teacher. I, I, I think I think that, that there are people who clearly uh, have, have it as an innate sort of force within them um and then i think that there are people that that just it doesn't matter how much teacher training you give them uh, it's just not going to work in terms of their personality type and then that's okay we've got we've got people we need people to do all kinds of things across the community across the world there are lots of different occupations what do you think i think that teaching is a skill that can be developed to a point Mm-hmm. But I think that there are some people that perhaps have personal qualities that would make that skill development much larger than yeah. others. So I would agree with you to a point, um, but I wouldn't want to mitigate the fact that even good teachers can become great teachers by working Absolutely. on their craft and, yeah, 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 yeah. and continually getting better. Yeah. Yes. No, 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 no. Absolutely. And I think... I think, and and I, I pulled up a, an article by a guy called David Moore, um, and he was referenced in a 2013 uh, journal article by a guy called Frank Lester Jr., who's kind of he's from the states and he's kind of I guess seminal in terms of mathematical problem solving. But in in the article by Moore, he talks about teaching or the or, or uh, uh, really exemplary teachers being craftspeople who are constantly working on their craft, who are constantly working to improve their craft. Yeah. Um, but what got me to the point of saying uh, that I believe that perhaps there are people that maybe just aren't 
suited to, to teaching is that he says the great advantage of thinking of teaching as a craft is the recognition that anyone can learn it. Competent teaching requires no special gift, no actor's personality, no divine mm. spark. And I actually, that's, so I agreed with the fact that I do think, especially mathematical problem-solving, inquiry-based learning, yeah. it, it takes time, it takes huge amounts of effort, um, and it doesn't matter how fantastic a teacher you are, you, you really need to keep working on it. Yeah. Um, but I do disagree with that idea that, um, that, uh, that, that maybe anyone uh, can, can become a teacher. I think that there are... You know, and then I guess I get some insight into it is, with my work here at the university, uh, getting to see pre-service teachers. There are certainly people who I who I just go straight away within meeting them five minutes. You're going to be a fantastic teacher. You, you can just see that they have the sort of the dispositions, I guess. Um, and then you're right that there are going to be other others who it's going to take a lot, lot, lot more work right. uh, in order to be able to sort of put together those those dispositions and those those uh, abilities to be able to, particularly to be able to form relationships, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would agree. And there are certain people who may never get there. And that's okay, um, especially if we think about the result. Because if we put um, ineffective teachers in front of our kids, what's the result, right? It's mm. the result on kids. Let's move on to the next one, which actually is very linked to that one. When you think of the term master teacher, mm. who or what comes to mind? Yeah, so I was sort of thinking about this too. And again, I was thinking about this idea of uh, certainly a master teacher is someone that's, that, that works on their craft. It's, it, it, there is no perfect teacher. It doesn't exist. No. Um, uh, we all need to be constantly reflecting on exactly what worked and what didn't there are going to be times where you know even as the most experienced teacher you walk out and you just won't be happy with it um there'll be you know and, and you'll reflect and you'll think okay how do i re-engineer that such that i can 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 address those issues that i've ad- identified if i'm gonna think about sort of naming i guess a, a an individual who who i who i really admire and i really uh attribute a great deal of of my own sort of beliefs about teaching to i'd actually probably say my my doc my principal doctoral supervisor who, who i mentioned earlier on associate professor robin pierce just because she had i mean and so we only we i mean throughout my doctoral candidature um we had like one-on-one discussions but through that time um just through a lot of those discussions i sort of developed this innate sense of what is required in order to be a successful researcher? Um, you know, it, it, and again, this actually relates to inquiry processes. Once you fundamentally understand the power of inquiry, um, then 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 you are going to understand how how to be a successful researcher. How you're going to be able to undertake um, investigations at a at a school level as a student. Um, but yeah, so she was able to just through discussions, sort of. Uh, have me at a point where I could see, I guess, the what what I now have to be the the logic um, b- behind how how to actually communicate and how to publish my my thinking and my findings. Here's one that you may not have thought of, and it might be again linked to uh, what you what you said previously. <clears throat> if teaching was easy, what would it look like? So 
again, another way to frame this is if we were to reduce teaching to the most essential elements, we were able to get rid of all the fluff. Yeah. What would it look like? I think the one word relationships, um, that's, I mean, at its core, I think that's the, the absolute most fundamental part of, of teaching without, without forming really good, strong relationships, the rest is, is meaningless. Um, you know, there, there, we, we, these days we research all kinds of different aspects to teaching, like in the, in the graduate school of education at the moment, there's this real push towards, uh, understanding learning environments, um, and, you know, building architectural spaces that are really, uh, you know, perfect fits for progressive pedagogies. Well, that's all well and good, but unless from the very moment that you walk in, you can establish really strong, really productive relationships. The rest is all going to be pretty meaningless. <laughs> sounds like a, sounds like a recipe for just going to take a walk with your class in the bush and learning about what you find. Uh, hey, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, last one before we get to a, some quick hitters is what would you say the biggest um, success or failure has been of your career? Um, the thing that you've, you've, you've kept oftentimes people actually um, look at it as their biggest failure and they, they see it perhaps in the moment as a failure, but in the long term they see it as a, as the lesson. Sometimes that's also yeah. a success. Sometimes it's, you know, an accolade that they said, okay, no, this is, do you have one of those moments the the lesson I, I, I don't I don't think I have like sort of one off moments that I kind of can can absolutely say well yeah that was a, t- a turning point in terms of that was such a big failure but I mean I do remember early on in my career I I probably I mean as probably most people do I modeled my teaching on what I had often experienced as a, as a student and I and and I mean some of the ways that 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 we were we, behavior management was dealt with for me as a student was things like punitive things like writing lines, those sorts of things. Um, so there was a period really early on where I tried a couple of those sorts of mechanisms and I quickly realized, and, 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 it, and, and, and I didn't feel comfortable about it at the time. I don't, I just did it because I was like, well, that's what teachers do. That's how, <laughs> that's how to go about it. Um, but I quickly realized that all it really led to was the kids becoming disenfranchised, uh, starting to feel, I guess, uh, hostile, I guess, towards me. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't building those positive relationships. Um, so then, you know, after that point, I realised, well, let's move right away from any kind of punitive uh, consequences uh, for you know bad behaviour, and let's ensure that we really do set up a community of learners where everyone is valued, where everyone's voice is valued, um, and once that was established, suddenly everything sort of fell into place. So yeah, I guess if I'm thinking about a failure, it's that it's the fact that I actually did that in the first place. But 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 as I said, if if I hadn't taken that approach, then perhaps I wouldn't have got that really strong learning from it uh, as well. Um, in terms of my greatest successes, I don't know. Learning's a, I mean it's a journey. Um, I, I I I think that that's probably yet to come. 
uh, and that's the way. <laughs> that's maybe the way that I'll always kind of con- conceive of it. Um, there's always there's always new things to to do. Always always new new ideas to research. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that that I'll, maybe I'll be able to answer that question in another twenty years, thirty years, maybe. I think that's a good perspective. Let's get into uh, what what I like to call the lightning round, um, and that's just uh, some quick hitters. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, don't have to elaborate too much unless it's interesting, and then I'll ask you a follow up question. But what is um, first one favorite education related app or website? Um, are you familiar with Dragonbox numbers? I, I am not. Okay, yeah, I love Dragon Box Numbers. So it's a it's a program that's been developed to to develop uh, early number. Um, uh, so my I have a I, that's something I haven't mentioned throughout this discussion, but I have a five year old daughter who's been playing that for a couple of years now, um, and it's it's fantastic in terms of developing number sense, um, in terms of partitioning, uh, repartitioning uh, numbers, sort of up sort of to 20 and beyond. Um, so in terms of just, just building that basic uh, fluency in terms of number sense, that's a that's an absolute beauty and I would highly recommend it. Love it. I think that we will be uh, downloading an app for my four-year-old son right away. <laughs> what is a book that you refer to or quote or that you have marked up the most? So this this is it. I know, I know your, re, your 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 listeners can't can't see it, but I've got the Dialogic Imagine, Imagination here by Buckton. Um, so Buckton was a I guess a contemporary of of Vygotsky, um, although he's he's far lesser known. Um, he was sort of around uh, and writing in the early twentieth uh, century, um, and actually his his a lot of the time he spent doing things like critiquing fictional works by people like Dostoevsky that got me intrigued by him uh, because I was uh, early, early on I, I I really liked the work of, of Dostoevsky his, his fictional works and so I just thought I'd, I'd pursue this but um, in addition to sort of critiquing sort of fictional works of, of literature and things like that he was also a philosopher of language um, and so fundamentally the ideas contained within that book have led to uh, the, the 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 large amounts of discussion and the large amounts of research that are, that now occur into dialogic approaches to teaching and learning. So uh, these days, people like Robin Alexander from the UK, Neil Mercer, Rupert Wegerif are used as sort of the the big names, I guess, to propagate the the idea of dialogic approaches to to to, to teaching and learning. And so. Um, so yeah, that's where he he is where all of all of that came from, and so uh, so interpreting that and really understanding and coming to grips with dialogic sort of theory of education uh, did inform a great part of of my thesis, um, and and I kind of postulated that, that through in in that thesis that uh, that you could take his ideas of dialogism that are generally applied to you know, the physical classroom, and you can actually apply them in the online context when kids communicate in that space. Interesting. I will definitely have to check that one out as well. Uh, What's one thing that you do uh, every day or most days that keeps you well, keeps you healthy, um, available to be the best educator you can? So I ride my bike uh, to and from uh, uni. So as I mentioned, I live around the Essendon type area. It's probably a 12-kilometer 
oh, it, it depends on the route that I take. Between 10 and 12 uh, Ks to um, to work and back. So I love my, my ride, although at the moment it's getting colder here in <laughs> Melbourne. Um, what, is, what does that mean for you, colder? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. Uh, so it's about it's about sort of ten degrees Celsius when I'm riding this morning, uh, and and that's too cold for me. I have to yeah. rug up, make sure that I've got a jacket on and a jumper underneath. Um, <laughs> I know that's probably pathetic. Gloves? Uh, no, 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 gloves. I I, I get it. No, yeah, no, that's yeah. that's <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah. Lastly, what is an organization or a person who inspires you? Um, could be right now, could be long term. Yeah, um, I would say, uh, and I wonder what you think about this. Elon Musk is someone that I think is pretty impressive. Um, yeah, I think I think particularly sort of his work with SpaceX um, is something that that boggles my mind. Listening to his his. Uh, director of SpaceX, and I can't. She's a. I watched a TED talk to her. It's, it's a. It's a, a woman, but anyway, she she um, she just I think uh, explains so uh, concisely and brilliantly uh, how important the work of engineers is, how important the study of physics is, mm-hmm. um, and I think that he's someone that's really pushing the envelope in terms of uh, in terms of science. Um, and, 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 and engineering um, to the point that, you know, potentially, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, we may, you know, be able to uh, colonize Mars within sort of the next decade or, or something, something like that. To me, that's incredible. And I find that inspiring. Absolutely. This idea of moonshot thinking is incredible, too. We just we limit ourselves so often. Uh, I, I, I appreciate Elon Musk for that, for just saying, OK, yeah. Break away what you think is reality or doable, and, and go mm. beyond that. And, and yeah, I think that that's a good, that's a good, uh, that is a good inspiration, even for us educators. Mm. So um, let's talk about the future. You, you talked a, a little bit about some of your future projects or things that you're waiting for human ethics uh, on. What are what are some of the projects or some of the questions that you're looking at tackling next? So. Yeah. So, into, uh, uh, speaking of ethics, uh, fortunately, yes, just yesterday, um, an ethics proposal uh, was accepted, uh, looking at integrated STEM. So, what I really want to sort of get to grips with is that there's a few things in terms of integrated STEM. At the moment, it's a relatively new field, as you would probably be aware. Like, it's only been around for the last five, seven, eight sort of years in terms of a in terms of a, a methodology or a, or a pedagogical approach. Um, there's not a huge amount of data around uh, integrated STEM-based approaches. There's lots of people that have written about sort of how great it is, how wonderful it is. There's lots of people suggesting that, you know, it's going to be the answer to uh, solving um, our future work needs. Um, Like it will give students the skills that they require to live in this unknown future and all of these kinds of things. Um, There's also suggestions that it will... Uh, it will lead to sustained engagement within the constituent disciplines and and all of that kind of thing. Um, so, what I want to do is actually create start to to formulate a an empirical basis for for integrated STEM within primary schools. Um, so that that's going to mean a kind of a number of different things. It's going to mean sort of looking at how how we can maintain the integrity of the specific disciplines of science, technology, engineering, and maths, whilst teaching lesson sequences that really authentically, synergistically integrate those four disciplines. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So, so thinking about sort of what are instruments that are going to allow us to sort of understand how a lesson sequence flows between those four disciplines, um, how best to amplify a specific discipline at, at any time throughout that learning sequence. Those are all sort of big questions that I think that, that we really need to identify. Um, I think we need to work further on the assessment of, of, of things like the transferable skills that everyone associates with integrated STEM-based approaches, so things like critical thinking, collaboration, um, problem solving, uh, logical sort of reasoning, uh, all, all of those kinds of things. At the moment, we're, we're really good at sort of, you know, testing and assessing procedures. Um, but actually ways of knowing is and, 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 and is and, and, uh, processes in terms of investigation and inquiry processes are something that we don't do very well in terms of assessment at all. And I think that, that, that also, I mean, as, as has been written, it, it also drives approaches to the way that the curriculum is enacted. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so I guess in, so into integrated STEM, certainly an area of further research, uh, inquiry based mathematics. I want to, we want to pursue that. I mean, I've already spoken to you around that a little. Yeah. I also want to pursue, uh, my interest in dialogic approaches to, uh, not just mathematics, uh, but also broadly STEM. Um, so, so, you know, how is it that, that we use language, um, that can, can really enhance, um, learning in, in those areas. Um, yeah, that's about it really. I think <laughs> sounds like a full plate. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, tell me how can people connect with you? Let's say they want to, uh, keep up to date, uh, Twitter handle website. Yeah. How, 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 what's the best way? So I'm on Twitter at DC Simons. S so it's D at DC S Y M O N S. Um, I'm on email. Anyone's welcome to email me. So my email address is duncan.simons, S-Y-M-O-N-S, at unimelb.edu.au. Um, they're probably the best ways of, of getting in contact. And as I said, I'm always happy to sort of chat education. You bet. Yeah. Well, thank you for chatting education with me today, Dr. Duncan Simons. Uh, I look forward to uh, taking you up on that AFL uh, offer. No, no problem. Anytime. <laughs> That's it for my conversation with Dr. Duncan Simons. If you like this episode, connect with the Intersection Education at our website, www.intersectioneducation.com, or on Facebook or Twitter. It also helps us out when you rate and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon with our next episode.